This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute, and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I had a God who was out to squash me. I had a God who who loved me deeply and yet was always waiting for me to misstep. And that's a really sad way to go through this life. And I want people relieved of that. I want them to abandon some of the fear that the evangelical church tends to trafficking. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Reverend John Pavlovitz. He's a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views. His previous books include A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Low. Today we're talking about his recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. Reverend John Pavlovitz, welcome to Things Not Seen. David, thank you so much. So good to be with you today. So I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. I'd like to start in the closet in your home, and you are there trying on a pair of old blue jeans. And that leads to a bit of insight about how we think about theological matters. But I wonder if you would take me and my listeners back to that time when you've got this pair of blue jeans, what happened and what you learned. Well, David, I came up in my college years in the 80s and was part of what would have been called a hairband at the time. And not long ago, I was going through the, the clothes rack in my closet and came upon this relic of my past, which was this pair of ladies stretched denim jeans. And they used to fit perfectly and uh, had a little bit of a, I wonder if they still fit moment, uh, feeling like I still keep myself in fairly good shape. And 
I tried putting them on and that turned out to be a really bad decision because I squeezed my way into them after much effort, but then realized I wasn't going to be able to get out of them myself and uh, needed a little bit of help. And it reminded me of the way that my spiritual journey has been like that over the past couple of decades, trying to fit into something that used to accommodate me, that used to be fully fine, but that I really outgrown and all the effort and all the stress was not going to help me fit into something that was no longer of the shape that I needed. And uh, that's how I have approached this spiritual journey in recent years. I love that story. And when I read it in your book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, one of the things that it reminded me of is Jesus's saying about the new wine and old wineskins, that, that certain things will burst if you try and get back into them later. Now, when I make that kind of comparison, and am I overreading you there, or was that something in your mind too? Or were you thinking about maybe other aspects of biblical reading when you were thinking about these blue jeans in your book? Well, actually, after I recorded the story, that was one of the scripture stories that that actually came to my mind. And that's so true. This idea that what Jesus was constantly telling people was, hey, the old thing is no longer big enough for the God that I want to invite you to explore. And that's true of all of us. I think we're all, all deeply spiritual people are in a constant state of growth and evolution, or at least we should be. And that means we're always going to argue with our former selves. We're always going to have a tension between things that we had comfort believing and things that we are now believing. And so I think that's a perfect reference. Now, when you talk about this and use a phrase like arguing with our former selves, one thing that I have experienced in my many years of being around churches is a certain type of theology, maybe it's ideology, I don't know, but it is this notion that the truth is unchanging. And we don't just say that from our pulpits, but we also sing that in our hymns. I think about that hymn that goes, he is Alpha and Omega, he the end beginning, he you know, that notion that God's truth never is going to change or alter. And that seems to push uncomfortably against this idea that we're arguing with our former selves and even with our former religiosity or our former theology. And I wonder when you're confronted by that kind of statement that you're, you're talking about changing an unchanging God or changing an unchanging truth, how do you begin to respond to that? Well, for me, the idea of the reality of God is unchanging. It's merely the way that I understand and perceive this truth. And there's a dangerous hubris, I think, that runs through organized religion that says certainty is sacred and that seeking or that questioning or doubt is some sort of character flaw. But in reality, if this God is as massive as we want to believe, then we're always just short of fully comprehending. I don't want a God that I can fully understand because that means that is not deserving of the title. And so there should be this sense of exploration and a sort of standing on tiptoe to see something we can't quite see. So the reality of God for me doesn't change, but every day I get a different insight into whatever the character of that God is. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reverend John Pavlovitz. He's a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His previous books have included A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Low. Today we're talking about his most recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. 
What I really like about what you're saying is this idea that God is mystery, that God is bigger than and is always overfilling whatever cup we might put our understanding of God in. I'm very comfortable with that. I think that's not really an interpretation or a view that I encounter much in my own church experience. So just to give you some background on me, I became a Christian in the what I like to call the rust on the buckle of the Bible belt down in South Georgia and then in Atlanta. So a very strong kind of evangelical bent was in the air there. I'm now Roman Catholic. Neither of those religious positions are very good at admitting that mystery demands interpretation. They seem to want to rush to mystery, and therefore I have these five precepts that will help you understand how the mystery is very manageable. And you're talking about an unmanageable mystery. Now, these are my words, not yours. As I use things like unmanageable mystery, are you comfortable with that, or would you want to say that in a different way? No, I think that's accurate. I think we want a God that is infinite and expansive and massive, but yet we want that God to be something that we can hold comfortably. And we want a a shorthand faith. And I think many of us, we don't want to take the time to really question the things that we think we believe. So that was been my story growing up Roman Catholic and then entering later on in life into organized ministry as a pastor. I had to really wrestle with the things that I would say or assume and ask myself if I really meant those things. Did I really believe that this was a fixed thing that I really understood? And the more I admitted that I didn't, the more tension that created in the particular communities where I was, because that sort of questioning was seen as a lack of faith rather than fully embracing a desire to know God, which is what it is. This is really helpful, and especially as you're giving us the kind of long view, because as you say in your book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, you've been what I would call, and I think what you also call, a professional Christian for close to three decades. Is that an accurate statement? It is, and it was something that started, David, about 27 years ago, and I I was surprised by ministry. It was not in the plan at all, and I started volunteering with students in a local church, and that sort of slowly evolved. But because of that, I didn't have the same set of lenses that maybe someone who set out to be a pastor had. I had civilian lenses. And then that caused me to ask different questions, I think, or challenge different assumptions. And I was comfortable with that, even if the people around me weren't always comfortable with it. I really like that phrase, civilian lenses, and I think a lot of my listeners will relate to that. You're basically talking about the lay standpoint. And when I went to seminary, I, I had classmates who had come through a certain type of college and had been reared in a certain type of congregation, and it was almost like they were taking on their seminary training as almost a a royal diadem placed on their heads. Like they they were a dynasty that was just waiting to be fulfilled. You're talking about a very different kind of experience. But this leads to a question that I, I think, I, and I'm not sure exactly even how to answer this question because it's something that we all wrestle with. But I wonder how 27, 26 years ago, early pastor John Pavlovich would receive a book like the one that you have just written, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk? Would it have been a warm reception or would there have been, would that earlier John Pavlovich have thought, this might be heretical or this might be pushing the boundaries too much? 
Right. Well, the early John Pavlovitz ministry uh, minister would have received it with some fear. It would have been uncomfortable, but would have still received it because at that point, I wasn't fully entrenched in the world of organized religion. But maybe six or seven years later, when I'm pastoring a megachurch and the, the profile is higher and the expectations are greater, then I would have had a, a real difficult time in even engaging the idea. And so that's the evolution of my faith has been that the more I walked down the road of local church ministry, the more I bought into the idea of surety. And it took a long time to unlearn that and to be and to welcome oppositional ideas. Now, when you say that, what comes to my mind is that quotation from Upton Sinclair, that a person has great difficulty hearing the truth if their paycheck depends on them not hearing the truth. Now, when I say that quotation to you, does, does that kind of accurately represent your experience as a megachurch pastor, or does that overplay the hand? No, it's accurate, and it, it, it reminds us all about the inherent political nature of ministry. Most ministers don't start out intending to live life this way. They're usually part of a small congregation or maybe are to a new congregation, and they're, they have aspirations that are quite pure and noble. The problem is these people that they love, that they're in this intimate community with, they often become beholden to them over time. And so those those forces were came to bear in my life, but I wasn't cognizant of them at the time. I couldn't have verbalized it. But when your position and your livelihood and your health insurance are all tied up in your role, well, then you start to second guess how fully you express yourself. And so I had the person I thought I was supposed to be as I followed Jesus and the pastor I was expected to be. And often there was a distance and a tension between those two. And the greater that became, the more in danger I was of this duplicity. You'll have to forgive me because we're moving towards a break and I'm about to ask you a a huge question, but you used the word a moment ago, political, in describing your experience as a megachurch pastor. I think that oftentimes from the outside, folks like me look at megachurches and see them as political players in the national landscape of kind of Republican and Democratic politics. When you were a pastor of a church of this size, did you have that sense of political credibility? Did you know or feel like you were a player or did it feel at that time like you were sort of an innocent voice sort of crying in the wilderness of those that had much more kind of political and pragmatic ends in mind? Well, for me, the the idea of political, it was much more localized and it dealt with the people that I was serving. And so I would be writing a message and realize for the coming Sunday, I knew the people who would be upset by it and I knew how important they might be in the church. And so what you began to do or I began to do was to soften my language or change my approach. So it was political in the sense that I knew that I had sway with the people around me and but yet they had influence on me as well. And I had to manage those things as I tried to create a pure expression of my spirituality. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reverend John Pavlovitz. He's a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views. His previous books include A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Low. Today we're talking about his recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. 
out recently from Westminster John Knox Press. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is the Reverend John Pavlovitz. He's a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views. His previous books include A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and low. Today we're talking about his recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. Well, I'd like to start this segment with another story that you tell in your book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, and that is a story from a dog park. You're out walking your dog, and you bump into a couple that are out walking their dog, and you end up getting into a conversation that quickly takes a, a pretty metaphysical turn. I wonder if you would take my listeners and I back to that day and tell us a little bit about what that encounter was like and what you talked about. Yes, I, I live not long, not far from a local seminary. And so I was at the dog park and met a young couple there and our dogs are getting to know one another. And we're just making that chit chat that dog owners make to one another. And they asked me what I did for a living. And I told them, and I think they recognized some of my writings or peripherally understood the, who I was. And they said that they were from the local seminary. And we started talking about spiritual matters in a very uh, approachable way and a very benign sort of level. But then we got on the subject of deep spirituality very quickly because the woman blurted out, well, I'm just so grateful to God because I deserved hell and he saved me. And there was something about encountering that position there in that dog park that I felt it was jarring to me, even though I'd heard it so many times. And Maybe I should have kept quiet, but I just pushed in a little bit. And I said, so you believe that you deserved hell simply for being born? And then she said, yes, but God loved me. And so he gave me Jesus. And so I kept nudging her to the point where the dog park experience became less comfortable. And I was praying for my dog to want to rush away. But it was encountering something that in the church, in that geography was quite uh, sensible, but outside of it was really something that caused me to pause and push back against. Now, I want to ask you about the structure of that moment, because as you describe it, and as I imagine it in my mind's eye, the, the woman in the couple that you're speaking to, 
She thinks that her position is absolutely coherent. I was born broken and God sent Jesus to fix me. Hallelujah. That is the mark of God's love. I I hope I'm not caricaturing her position. But you also believe that your own position was coherent. A loving God would not create broken things in the first place. And again, I hope I'm not caricaturing your position. But what I want to get at is that both of you were standing in that moment thinking that your particular position was coherent and sensical, and the other person's position was incoherent and nonsensical. And I want to ask you about that moment of divorce, if you will, that happens so often in conversations like this, where we're talking about important, eternal, metaphysical, invisible things, and you have a sense of how things fit together, and your conversation partner has a sense of how things fit together, and they're not fitting together in the same way. How do you ever maneuver or negotiate in that situation, except for just having to to step away and say, we agree to disagree. Well, I, a lot of it starts with relationship. It's obviously much easier to have these kinds of conversations if there's some level of intimacy between people where we have, we can let down our guards and talk about these things. In the case of this woman, yeah, I didn't see her as necessarily nonsensical, even if I may have used that word. It was more, I wanted to understand her her identity when it's filtered through the idea of a God who was originally angry at her. And so my tact was simply questions saying, do you really believe that a God who loves you more than any other love that you could ever know here would hold a grudge against you for something someone else did millions of years ago? And so it's in asking those questions, which is what I try to do with the blog and the books is to ask questions that I used to be terrified to ask and invite people into that discomfort. And they can come to whatever conclusions they come to. I'm not there to make them agree with me theologically or politically. I want them to stretch from where they are to maybe a more expansive place. I'm so glad that you use the word relationship. And I think that's something that my listeners need to really grasp. And that is, this particular encounter was an encounter with acquaintances. And the way that you approached that was to ask questions of these acquaintances, both to understand their position more fully, but also to begin to build a conversational bridge. What I want to stress, and what I think gets missed a lot of times in these characterizations of these kind of encounters, and you say it, plainly in your book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, you weren't trying to win that moment. You weren't trying to defeat their position. You were trying to understand it and build a bridge. Now, when I characterize it that way, have I got it right or would you say it differently? No, that's correct. David, we all have these lenses that we view the world through, and they're very unique to us. We have once in history, never to be repeated collection of uh, experiences and opinions and ideas, and we see the world very uniquely, even though we don't realize that we do. And so learning people's story is vital to at least having some empathy for their position. So for example, I understand because of this woman's, the seminary she attends, for example, or the church where she's been going for decades. I know the the kind of doctrine that she's been steeped in, and I know how difficult it is to see outside of that. But knowing that story is very important because she's not just some stereotype that showed up in the middle of my life, and she's not just some one-dimensional caricature. She's a, a fully complex human being, and I need to respect that and understand where that belief comes from, not just what she believes, but why she believes it. That's, again, really helpful for you to flesh that out for me. And I mean that 
literally that you're enfleshing, not caricaturing the, the person that you're talking to, trying to treat them as a complex person. Where this gets interesting in your book is when we get to the chapter on LGBTQ plus questions. And I, I don't want to caricature this woman's position or the seminary to which she is attending or anything like that. But my experience of a certain type of evangelical approach to those moments of difference with another is to look at the other's difference. And in this case, someone who is professing love that is oriented towards same-sex attraction. And they will look at that and say, ah, I know your story better than you do. Let me tell you your story and how you are wrong. Now, when I characterize it that way, my question to you is, first of all, am I caricaturing that position or is this consonant with your experience of how this kind of moment is approached? And what is the loving response <laughs> or what is love in that situation? Because these people, as you say in your book, they think that they're loving someone by telling their story back to them in a way that doesn't match the person's experience. Well, this, this the issue of sexuality for me was a gateway to my dismantling of my orthodoxy because as I was in relationship with LGBTQ people, life began to argue with my theology. And so I, was, I had these people in my life who were giving me a very different understanding of the LGBTQ experience than I was getting from a pastor, for example. And so I had to wrestle with, was I going to lean into this experience of other people or was I just going to lean on the old theology? And that started me down this road. And I think many people, they want to stay in the old theology and they don't care about the person in front of them. They almost ignore the evidence that they have experientially because they want, they don't want to abandon or let go or loosen the grip on that theology because that theology is really sacred to them. The doctrine, that certainty, that's sacred, and anything else feels like heresy to them. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Reverend John Pavlovitz. He's a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views, and his previous books include A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Low. Today we're talking about his recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. Well, I want to circle back to something that you just said. You said that your relationship with LGBTQ plus persons was really the gateway to dismantling your orthodoxy. And I think that for some of my listeners, that's going to be a kind of red flag moment where, oh, he's stepping away from orthodoxy. He's stepping away from the truth. He's admitting it. And now he is admitting that he is outside of the Christian faith. He's outside of Christian truth. I want to really ask you about this word orthodoxy. What does that mean to you? Is that something to be run away from? Is that something to be reformed? Or do you feel that now you're occupying a more full and robust type of orthodoxy rather than a, a kind of fleeing from orthodoxy? Like, how do you understand this term orthodoxy? I understand it as a very localized because there was an orthodoxy that was at work in that particular local community that I was pastoring. And there was a different one for the Methodist church down the street or the Presbyterian one across the corner. So I, I understood that what I was 
feeling was antithetical or at least oppositional to some of the things that I was supposed to believe at this particular denomination and this particular expression of it. But if I was at uh, an Episcopal church, it might not be. But for me, it felt like a betrayal of what I was supposed to believe, the sort of party line of my local congregation. But when I let go of that fear and, and leaned into something that felt larger and more appropriately sized as God, well, then I didn't worry about whether it was orthodox or not. Now I see orthodoxy, my, my apologetic is empathy. I think that's the lens through which I view everything about my expression of spirituality. Is it leading to greater empathy or is there more cruelty? And that's really the heart of the book. If your faith doesn't make you more loving and more compassionate and more generous, then it's really rather pointless. Wow, that phrase that you just used, that your apologetic is empathy, really jumped out to me. And it, it was a question that I wanted to ask you, so I'm glad that you framed it this way. Because I have often said, and I'm an educator, I'm also a professional Christian in many ways, and I have often said to my students, there's really not an apologetic bone in my body. I'm really not trying to convince anyone else that they need to become Christian. I'm trying to convince them that they're loved. And I do this because I teach in a pastoral context and everything like that. I really wanted to ask you whether or not you thought about what you're doing here, your blog, your writing, your interactions on social media, whether you thought about this as a kind of evangelism. And it sounds like you do, but I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I think, David, what happens is when I'm presenting an idea, it's usually just a question, and I'm questioning something that other people may have not questioned for a long time and they feel wrong to question, they're going to respond negatively. And so it often feels probably from their perspective that I'm trying to defeat them or win an argument or change or fix or save or renovate them. But in actuality, I'm asking them to ask questions that might open their eyes to more empathetic and more loving and more gentle God. And so I grew up Roman Catholic and I say that I had a God who was out to squash me. I had a God who, who loved me deeply and yet was always waiting for me to misstep. And that's a really sad way to go through this life. And I want people relieved of that. I want them to abandon some of the fear that the evangelical church tends to traffic in. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a moment. And again, I hope that my listeners will understand that I'm not trying to caricature a position, but rather to characterize a position that I have heard articulated in almost this exact language. Listen, Reverend Pavlovitz, the world is a burning building. Everything is on fire. And at this particular moment, God is about to come back and Satan has hold of the world and is engulfing it in flames. I don't have time to sit and build a relationship with someone. I don't have time to accept someone else's erroneous view. My job is to grab them and by any means necessary, pull them out of the burning building. That's my job. Whether I'm a pastor or a person who is just meeting someone on the street, if I'm interacting with you and I recognize that you are part of the fire, if you are part of LGBTQ, if you're part of this kind of liberalism, if you're part of anything, you're part of what's burning and on fire. There are flames on you. I need to help you put those out and get you to safety. Now, I'm, again, not trying to caricature that position. Growing up in the South, that is a position that I heard said in various ways, almost with that kind of literal phrasing. When you encounter that kind of theology, 
how does what you're saying, this kind of let's take time to build relationships, let's take time to really e- explore and examine your position of the truth and my position of the truth, how does that stand up against the urgency that someone is feeling at that moment? I, th- I think it has a lot to do with whether you view your spirituality, your expression of faith as after this life focused or present life focused. And what I mean by that is there there are a lot of people who believe that their theology is, exists to get people out, out of hell, to save them from that eternal damnation. And yet from, from my perspective, if that's true, if that's all Jesus came to do, then the gospels could have been really short. It could have been a great altar call message and he closed it and that was it. But there are these hundreds of stories of Jesus living alongside people and eating with them and healing them and talking to them. And so that has to matter. Otherwise, those stories wouldn't be there. And so I would tell people that their lives, as short as they are, were there at this place in time in the history of this planet to reflect the character of, of God. And for me, the character of God is, uh, is empathy, relentlessly so. I, I want to thank you for that answer because just in this moment, I have understood a distinction that never really was illuminated for me before, the distinction between Jesus and John the Baptist. Because the kind of immediacy that you're talking about is much more a kind of John the Baptist repent and turn kind of immediacy. Jesus is a much more patient narrative that we get. And I love how you said that. And when I make this this uh parallel between Jesus and John the Baptist, and that the gospel of John the Baptist would have been really short, and the gospels that we get about Jesus are long and involved and relational. When I'm making that, how does that sound to you? Am I onto something? Have I understood something that you already understood? Or is this something that we need to think about more in the church? When I was in probably three months into my first uh, you know, church work, I was just volunteering and a pastor who was mentoring me actually said that. He said, John, you can be a John the Baptist Christian and you can point your finger or you can be a Jesus Christian and have your hands open to people. And it, it isn't as cut and dried as that, but Jesus, I think he always retains the humanity of the of those across from him. And he does want to learn that story. I mean, there's, there's these images of this woman at the well saying, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And that's true. There is something sacred about knowing other people and respecting that story. And I think Jesus was a a perfect example of that. Now, one last pushback before we go to break. When my wife and I get up in the morning, one of the first questions that our kids ask us is, what's the weather today? And I'm sure that some listeners have their money invested in some kind of 401k or maybe even a pension fund, but maybe some have their money invested in the stock market. And they really want to know with as much assurance as possible, which stocks are going to go up and which stocks are going to go down. Our entire culture is oriented towards trying to minimize risk and minimize variables. And what you're preaching here, because you're literally giving us an alternative gospel of being open to the risk of others. Because when I talk to someone and I can't immediately categorize them, that's messy. And in our culture, messy is dangerous. What do we do with that when everything else is telling us to narrow down the things that we're not sure of? You're asking us to open it up. How do you respond to that? Well, that's the only way that I know how to do this work and live this life is to be 
honest about, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I can remember being at uh, the conference of this major evangelist and the thousands of people, and he's up there and he's speaking eloquently and with great passion and with great confidence. And sitting there a few feet from him, I realized he doesn't know any more about this than I do, or that person sitting in the third row or someone driving by right now. He doesn't have surety. He has the illusion of it. And so for as confidently as he can preach, it doesn't help him actually answer these eternal questions. And with that, I think I was terrifying in the moment, but it was also comforting to know that there are no spiritual necessarily experts. There are only people who lean into the questions. And uh, that's, that's a wonderfully freeing thing to me now. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reverend John Pavlovitz. He's a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views. His previous books include A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Low. Today we're talking about his recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans out recently from Westminster John Knox Press. We'll be back in a moment. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Reverend John Pavlovitz. He's a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views. His previous books include A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Low. Today we're talking about his most recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. Well, I want to turn now to the social media and blogging side of your ministry, if, if that's not saying too much to call it part of your ministry. I'm wondering what it's like to be a Christian and particularly a pastor in social media. This is not some fly-by-night thing that is bolted on to your other activities. You have invested a huge amount of time, and I would imagine emotional resources, into crafting this part of your engagement as a public Christian. I'm wanting to ask you, what has that experience been like, and what have you learned from this investment of time and emotions in being a blogger and in being on social media in an, and engaging in the ways that you have? Well, David, actually, the interesting part was that the social media component was there before the audience was there. I was writing a blog uh, just as a resource to my mega church, to parents of teenagers, and I was talking about youth ministry, and I was very insider, very close community. And as I wrote little by little, that found it, the writing found a larger audience. And I had wrote a couple higher profile pieces that pushed me right outside of that audience. And what I began to feel was a responsibility 
to speak very explicitly. And as I did that, the audience grew. So I did have the luxury of slowly entering this, but then I had a couple of viral moments where I had an influx of millions of people and I had to realize what came with that. And what came with that was a very turbulent existence where everyone has an opinion because they care deeply about something that you're writing about. And you had to learn which I've learned is to take the praise and the criticism and hold them both loosely and to realize you don't work for either of those reactions. You do this public work to reach someone at a profoundly deep level and you have to know that there is going to be collateral damage to that. And so I try to get up every day and ask, why do I do what I do? What is my motivation? And then I leave the reactions to those people. The words are going to do largely what they're going to do in people. But you do see the worst and the, the most beautiful of humanity across your timeline. Now, in, in my time on social media and in my time being a writer, I have experienced just a, a fraction of what you've just described. I have experienced pushback. And one of my internal wrestlings was this desire I, I'm thinking about the cartoon of the person sitting at the computer and his wife leans in and says, are you still up? And he says, yeah, some, someone is wrong on the internet. Like the desire to, to constantly win, the desire to make it all better and to fix it or what have you. And I'm, I'm wanting to ask you about how you yourself have learned about yourself as you have confronted these reactions, these, these desires to respond with perhaps an insult or to respond with a kind of winning blow or to respond with an idea that just shuts the conversation down instead of opening it up. These are all instincts that I have had. So I'm naming that about myself. I'm assuming that you have had them, although I may be wrong about that. But I'm wondering how you have negotiated teaching yourself to be a better self online. It's, it's an hourly challenge. It really is because you care so deeply. And, and in my case, humanity really matters to me. These are not just political issues and they're not just theological talking points. These are, I know that the human beings that these conversations represent. And so I bring passion to that. And I bring sometimes what I would call that propellant of anger that really sets someone off down a road of activism or can set us down a road of something that's negative. And I have to constantly ask myself, what is my intention with this particular conversation that, I, that I'm in? Am I trying to show them something that they haven't seen in a different way? Or am I trying to put them on blast? And that is something we constantly have to be honest with ourselves. And I look at someone and look at the image of Jesus and he calls himself the good shepherd. And which means that he was the pastoral caregiver to those he saw as the harassed and helpless sheep. But to those he viewed as the wolves, he was the righteous opposition. And so I think we can hold that ferocity for humanity and alongside our gentle, loving nature. But we have to be careful and ask ourselves why we wield it in the way that we do. We've been talking so far about the people that push back and the people that disagree with you online, the people who would bring vitriol either to your email inbox or your social media feed. But I'm wondering now about the people that agree with you. Is there a danger there as well? Do you ever find yourself tempted to read their words as and getting puffed up, if I can use Paul's language? Like, is there a temptation and a danger there as well? And how do you navigate and negotiate that? I suppose there's a danger in that the, I'm fortunate in that my audience is so disparate, even though they may lean center to the left, a lot of them, there is such a 
a varying degree of the things that they connect on. So many people are religious people, but many are agnostic and atheist. So even there, I'm not writing to please one group or the other because it's impossible. I'm trying to speak from the most authentic place I can and know that some people are going to come with me. Some are going to agree on different issues. And uh, that's okay. Uh, We gathered last night for a a Zoom conversation. I've been leading people through a virtual study of the book. And there were hundreds of people there. And in the chat, just tell me how you describe yourself theologically. And it was all over the map. It was atheist, it was agnostic, it was Christian, Jew, former Christian, recovering Catholic. So there's no way that I could please all those people. So I just try to get up and speak as clearly and and, uh, authentically as I can. Now, if I'm understanding what you've said earlier in the conversation and what you've communicated in your in your book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, when you encounter people that self-identify as agnostics or atheists or former Christians, your evangelistic reflex is not to suddenly doctrine at them or not to suddenly corner them and say, if you were to die tonight, would you know where you were going? That kind of question. My understanding is that to the extent that you can, given that, you know, social media is always fleeting interactions, to the extent that you can, you're trying to build some kind of limited relationship with them and to begin to understand them as they understand themselves. When I say these words to you, do you hear yourself and your practice and your intention reflected in them, or would you say it in a different way? How do you describe those kind of interactions when someone describes themselves as an atheist, an agnostic, a former Christian? Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, David, my instinct would have been to try to get them to come around to my way of thinking or the right theology. But I see myself over the past few years more as a war correspondent. I'm a collector of stories. And so I travel virtually or I travel around the country and people share their stories with me. And I try to take those stories and then report back to the public and say, this is what's happening here on the ground. And that's really when you're a translator of stories, then the onus is not on me to fix or change or save anyone. It's on me to tell the truth as I've experienced it and let people do whatever they're going to do with that reality. So telling the story of people who are marginalized or oppressed or being hurt by organized religion is then an invitation to people who practice religion to to respond. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reverend John Pavlovitz. He's a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views. His previous books include A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Low. Today we're talking about his recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. Well, we've been speaking a lot about you now, Reverend John Pavlovitz, and the Reverend John Pavlovitz in various points along your journey over the last 30 years. But I'm wondering now if we can turn that focus in a different direction. You are understanding yourself in a particular place theologically at this moment. But if we were to take that and telescope it out another 10, 15, 20, maybe even 30 years, where do you see that going? How do you see that changing? Are you now confident that you're in the place that you're going to be pretty much for the rest of your theological life? Or do you see that 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 evolution may in fact continue? And if it does, where do you see it pointing? I think what I experienced over the past 15 years is a comfort with the questions and a realization that 
I'm not going to have those questions answered fully while I'm here. I think the the idea of understanding God is trying to figure out the unfigureoutable. And so I hope in 10 or 20 or 30 years, I'm still able to be comfortable with what I don't know and leaning into what I do. I often ask people, if you're struggling in your theology, I just tell them, figure out what you know to be true about the character of people, about the beauty of the world, about what your your desire is for your life. What do you know to be true? And fashion the best working theology you can from all that information and trust that some of it's just going to be incomplete beyond that. And I hope I'll still be comfortable with those questions. The word that rang out to me in your answer just now is the word hope, not the word assurance. You, you hope about a certain way of being towards other people in the future. And this really points towards something that has been coming back to me again and again in our conversation. You don't think about theology as a knowledge. It doesn't seem to me. You think about theology not as a set of precepts to be organized. It seems to me much more that you're thinking about theology as a kind of ethical practice, religion as a kind of way of being towards others with empathy. Now, when I say that, those are my words. You haven't said those words. So I want to make sure, am I tracking right? Does this characterize kind of the way that you think about this? Or would you say this a different way? Well, David, I... Whatever we believe, uh, we can debate with people, we can argue, we can have conversations, but ultimately what we believe is expressed relationally. People only really understand what our belief system is by the way that we treat them and by the way we operate in the world. So I see spirituality as simply this tangible expression of the deepest contents of my heart. And it sounds maybe trite, but that's all we have. All we have is the space of our lives to express those deeper things. And so you do the best that you can with the day before you. So when I hear you saying that, what rings in my mind is love your enemies, do good to them that persecute you. And I also think of Matthew 25, that Jesus said that he would be present in the people who are sick, the people who are in prison, the people who have been rendered vulnerable and unwanted. Now, that seems to me, those two pieces of the gospel, that we're supposed to really be generous towards those that our whole society tells us not to be generous to, and that we encounter Jesus in the places where the forgotten kind of linger and where they've been relegated to, that seems to me to be the background drumbeat of your book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. Have I got it right? Or are there other keys in Scripture that we should be looking at, either in place of these that I've named or in addition to the ones that I've named? No, I think those are accurate, David. And also, I've, I began life in ministry and really loved Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, because it tells us that Jesus looks at the crowds and he's preaching and teaching and healing. He's doing a very holistic ministry. But it says when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I think it's understanding the lenses through which we view the crowds whether that's in our neighborhood, in our living room, on social media, do we see first what the world is doing to people, their internal condition, or do we see what they're doing and their behavior? And I think there's a different emphasis. And mine has always been to see the grief and the fear and the pain undergirding all of our lives. Oh, wow. There's a lot there to unpack, and I'm really grateful for that answer. 
one thing that it leads me to ask is you just mentioned that passage about Jesus and being the shepherd. And so I want to ask you about ego because you're a published author. You're popular with your blog. You're very visible. Are you the shepherd and are you helping to guide the people or is Jesus the shepherd and you're helping to point to Jesus? Where is Reverend John Pavlovitz in that characterization? I often think I'm one of the harassed and helpless sheep just trying to help let other sheep know that we're in this together. I, I think we all read the stories of the Bible if we're religious people and we we place ourselves in the story. And often it's easy to say, oh, I'm of course I'm Jesus or one of the disciples. But often I think my own uh, sense of self places me in the the beggar on the side of the road or the 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 bleeding woman. I understand that pain. And so that ego, I try to remove that because I really, it's artificial because any of that sort of puffed up stuff comes through social media, which is artificial. No one really knows another human being. So I live with who I am every day. And I think that helps keep me as humble as I can be doing this work. It's unnatural to be a pri- to express private things publicly, but as a pastor, I've been doing that for a long time, and you learn to get used to that. Well, then, so that leads me to ask, you've talked about having book events around the release of If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, and I'm wondering, how has your experience of the reception of this book been? Like, when you are encountering people engaging the book, either favorably or unfavorably, has it been what you've expected, or has it gone in some directions that have surprised you? The book was released on September 28th of this past year, and on October 1st, three days later, I had to have brain tumor surgery. And what that meant was during this all-important first week and the weeks that follow, I was in intensive care, and then I was in the hospital, and then I was in recovery. And I, I had to allow the readers to carry the book. And what was astonishing was the way that they embraced it. And the, the book has just done tremendously, but it's been beautiful to see that it hasn't been a lot of my doing. It's been simply people's connection with the words that I recorded there, which is so gratifying. And so you have people who are embracing it because they find themselves in there. And you have other people that are reaching out to you because this is a very abrasive idea that they may be encountering. And they're all beautiful. They're all perfect because that's not my job to fix, you know, to convert them. My job is to just expose them to some questions. I hadn't realized that you were going through that medical situation. And I want to thank you, first of all, for trusting me and my audience with that information. And I hope that I speak on behalf of all of my listeners when I say, I hope that you are well, and I hope that you are recovering fully and quickly. Thank you. It's something that we decided, David, really early on when I got the diagnosis back in August was that this is the work I do is to live life in real time and share it with people as best I can. And I didn't want to take this part of my life and censor it out of there. So we invited everyone into the journey and it's been a really beautiful season in our lives and I'm feeling well and we're going to find out the next couple of days if a second surgery was required or not. But it's given a layer of intimacy to the work that I do, and I'm grateful for it. Well, best wishes for that diagnosis and information that you get uh, a couple days after we're recording this, and I, I wish you the best and wish you well. 
I, I want to say, first of all, that I have really enjoyed this conversation, but also to say, you know, I teach in a pastoral studies context, and I've been trying over the years that I've been doing that craft to really communicate to my students that Matthew 25 and the way that Jesus has oriented the world towards the wounded and the vulnerable is something that we need to be paying attention to. I've been doing that in various fractured ways, and then your book comes along, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, and you say so many of the things that I've been trying to communicate to my students in such clear, available, really accessible terms. I'm so grateful that you took the time and the experience of the many years to distill it down to write this book. I'm especially grateful that you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. Uh, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Reverend John Pavlovitz. He is a blogger, author, and pastor based in North Carolina. His blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, recently surpassed 100 million views. His previous books include A Bigger Table, Hope and Other Superpowers, and Low. Today we've been talking about his recent book, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.